Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is physiatrist, pain management specialist, and researcher, Dr. Timothy Davis. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Now let's meet Dr. Davis. We're here in Santa Monica with Dr. Tim Davis, a physiatrist and pain management specialist. We're at Source Healthcare and Surgery Center. Welcome to meet the doctors. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, you're a physiatrist, and I always like to explain what that is. The easiest way to explain what physiatry is, is really putting it in familiar terms. It's non-surgical orthopedic medicine. So everything musculoskeletal from stem to stern, <laughs> we deal with uh, in a non-surgical fashion or a minimally invasive fashion. And I'm sure people come to you for that. They don't want surgery and they want to be able to do something closer to conservative. That is correct. And when you look statistically at who needs surgery when you have orthopedic injuries, usually it's about 20 to 20% to 15% mm -hmm. of orthopedic injuries will actually need to go to surgery. So there's a, there's a big client population that just needs guidance and needs minimally invasive types of techniques to take care of the injuries. Now, I noticed that you said clients instead of patients. Please explain. <laughs> Correct. About five years ago, <clears throat> I felt like we needed to change the culture hmm. of our team because in medicine it is all too common that during our training a patient is treated different from the provider they are expected to be patient sitting in the lobby <laughs> yeah. and i think anyone that's ever gone to see a physician or been to a hospital uh, has grown accustomed to waiting in a lobby for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. And then even when you get in the room, it may be another 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, when you break that down into workflow and process and just doing good business yeah. for a, a good service industry, that's unacceptable. And so it, it's, a culture, it's a cultural problem in healthcare providers so what we did was we just stopped using the term patient because I felt that it kind of carried forward that same type of mentality that the patient's time was not as valuable as our, ours. And we started to use the word client. Mm -hmm. And so client has a different connotation to it. it. Sure does. Client yeah. is someone that is there for a service and you are there to serve them. Right. So, uh, in, in making that transition to no longer use the term patient and only use the term client, 
there was a bit of a pep talk and a continued correction mm -hmm. of the behavior for my team where I kept on trying to drill it in. Their time is as valuable as ours. Their time is, and I don't care if you are retired, if you run a Fortune 500 company, or if you are um, a computer technologist, it doesn't matter what you do. You are still a client to us and your time, regardless of what you do or where you are in society, your time is just as valuable as ours. And so long explanation to a short question, <laughs> but you get the point. And so, yeah, over time, we changed the culture of our team and it's actually started to transition I've seen other people start to adopt that terminology as well. Well, you're a leader. Other people will follow. That makes sense. Now, you've done so much research, given so many presentations, been involved in so much cutting-edge things of all types. There's, the list goes on and on. But I like to go back to the beginning and then find out how you got here. Where were you born and raised? Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri. I was actually born in St. Louis, but then raised in Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri for most of uh, my childhood. What was that like? Was it lots of lakes, I suppose? Well, a big lake. Uh -huh. uh, it's one of the largest lakes, 80 miles long. Oh my goodness. Uh, and grew up water skiing. Mm -hmm. I actually skied in a show uh, <laughs> for a while. My, my big life decision was whether I was going to be a professional water skier or go to medical school. <laughs> so, what a great choice. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know when you're, when you're uh, 17 trying to make that decision, um, the water skiing life and the summers <laughs> and the fun that was yeah. very appealing, but the longevity of it was what caused me to kind of put that to the side. Sure. And where did you do your undergraduate work? I didn't see that on your list of your, uh, your schooling. It was, it was a combined program. So oh. you go straight into medical school out of high school. So it's a six-year medical program. I was going to ask you uh, why it was six years. So you only had six years instead of four and four. Correct. Okay. Right. So University of Missouri, Kansas City is one of a few schools around the country that uh, compact the curriculum into six years. So we got our undergraduate degrees done in about two and a half. Hmm. We what, were, what was yours in? Just pre-med? No, it's all the same. Yeah, it's all one program. It was all it was all the same kind of program, but we had a trimester, so we we went to school all year round. That speeds things up. And yeah, it does. And I I guess I've had people say, "Well, didn't you miss out on the summers and things like that?" My response is, "You don't know what you don't know." So if you if you don't have that summer off, that first year of college you don't know any better or any different. And so you just do. And you got through in six years what took everybody else eight years to do. Uh, yeah, but I, there was, I mean, we had a hundred people in each class, mm -hmm. so it's somewhat unique. Yes. Uh, the attrition rate was pretty high though. We lost about 30 people within the first 12 months. They wanted their summers off. <laughs> well, no, it was just a pretty intense yes. curriculum. Mm -hmm. We had, we were taking... 17 to 22 hours per semester and a full-time 17 to 22 right <laughs> 17 I, I remember think the was... I remember my semester I took 17 that was a killer I went back to 15 the next semester right so I think full-time is somewhere around 12 to 15 yeah, hours yeah but uh -huh. I, I mean now today I mean this was 25 years ago so today I'm sure that it's that's probably commonplace I don't know and then you went 
to New Orleans for a one-year general surgery internship. Yeah, I started out, I wanted to be in the OR, and so I liked general surgery. How did you know that? How old were you when you knew you wanted to first be a doctor and then you knew you wanted to do surgery? Oh, no, I wanted to be a professional water skier. Just, <laughs> okay, I, I when felt, did you switch gears? I fell gears? back on being a doctor. <laughs> uh, so uh, I didn't really consider surgery until I was in medical school and, and did the uh, surgical rotation. Thought, okay. it was, thought it was very cool, liked using my hands, always have, and the technical aspect of it and then the base anatomic understanding was mm-hmm. all very intriguing to me. So that's what kind of geared me towards uh, surgical specialty, but then I got about halfway through the internship and the lifestyle was just not conducive with my personality. My personality was starting to change. Okay. And I had a couple of good friends that were nurses at the time that, uh, can I cuss? <laughs> we can always cut it out uh, if we change our okay. minds. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say that they said that I was turning into an a-hole. Okay. Right, for lack of any other term. Uh, and it was because it was, it was grinding. Yeah. Uh, we were... You weren't fun anymore. No. In 96 to 97, the the new labor laws had not been implemented. Uh, so we were on call every other night. Mm. And the nights that you were off, you still didn't exit the hospital until at a, at a minimum 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there were nights when I wasn't even on call, but I was still at the hospital past midnight. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, it's not... It, it wasn't really like you were off. You wanted to have a bit of a life and be a doctor. Right. Well, because, and then the next day you'd have to be back in the hospital by about four to five in the morning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really any time there. And now that wasn't every month, but that was a lot of months. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through, I was like, yeah, I don't really think I'm going to dig this too much on a long-term basis. Being I a liked, surgeon. Right. Well, I liked the skill set. Mm-hmm. I liked using my hands. I liked being in the OR. And so then that's when I actually converted to physical medicine rehabilitation or physiatry mm-hmm. was because there was a, a path where physiatry allowed you to go into interventional pain management, non-surgical orthopedics, were able to do procedures, but the procedures that you did do you were maximum in the OR for hour and a half, maybe. Okay. So interventional pain management. Right. What what kind of things are you picturing there when you think when you say that? What are you? Give me an example or two of that. Oh, it's non-surgical orthopedics. That's. But you're some, doing interventional. So what what is the interventional oh, part? What oh, does that represent? Uh, so a lot of things through a needle okay. or through a very small incision. Probably the most invasive thing that we do is implanting a a permanent spinal cord stimulator. For pain control. For pain, mm-hmm. for pain control. That's people with chronic neuropathic pain. Where neuropathic, meaning the nerve is inflamed well, the nerve is injured, damaged. and sometimes you can't even see it on an MRI. Mm-hmm. You can't see it on any imaging study that you will do, but the person has some sort of nerve-patterned pain mm-hmm. or hypersensitivity. And so then we will implant a trial spinal cord stimulator that they're electrical leads that are sending out electrical signals to block the pain signal that, that travels up the spinal cord. And this is underneath the skin. You open up the skin and implant it 
Well, the, the trial goes just through a needle. It's really no more invasive huh. than an epidural injection. But when you convert to a permanent, so you do a trial for about a week, make sure that it is going to work well for the person. It's right. like test driving a car. Yeah. You're not, it's very non-committal. And then if it does work, then you convert to a permanent stimulator. And the permanent stimulator is like a pacemaker for pain. Hmm. It has electrical leads. They're made by the same companies even. Uh, that do pacemakers and the battery pack is the same brain and computer that pacemakers have. And it's inside the thing that's and implanted it's, or is it on the outside? Nope, fully implanted. Okay. So you implant the leads and you mm -hmm. bury those and anchor those and then you implant the, the battery pack. So that's probably the most invasive thing we'll do, although we are, we also do kyphoplasties, which is where we... Uh, will fix a broken vertebral body or a, or a compression fracture is what it's known mm -hmm. known as with cement. So it's like you're putting a cast on from the inside oh, out. Interesting. Right? So that's yeah. for back pain. That's after, a kyphoplasty. It's yeah. like you're putting a cast on a vertebra. Right. Correct. Okay. But, but from the inside, inside. out, you're, you're actually putting the cement in between the fracture plane to stabilize that bone until it can heal back together. And then uh, another thing we do is called the Superion procedure or the Vertiflex procedure. It's for spinal stenosis. It's a very small incision with a small implant that holds the vertebrae open so the nerves don't get compressed when people stand up and walk. That's uh, what stenosis is, is a compression of the vertebrae onto a nerve. That's correct. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's a, And then there's a lot of other stuff. Performed just through needles, uh, radiofrequency ablation for facet pain. Oh, now we're going to have to break that all the way I down. Know, I okay, know. Okay, okay. Right. So <laughs> uh, it's burning the nerves okay. for facet pain. Using radiofrequencies. Using, yeah, using, using a needle, uh, epidural injections, facet blocks, sacroiliac procedures. The facet is part of the joints of how one vertebra overlaps onto the other. Correct. Yeah. And then all the other types of injections that you can do for every single joint in the body. We will sometimes do that under ultrasound guidance or fluoroscopic guidance. Fluoroscopic is real-time x-ray, mm -hmm. right? So you can do... That way you can tell exactly that you're putting a needle in the precise spot that you want it to correct, go. Correct, correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes the way you're figuring out what's causing the problem is uh, clinical diagnosis from the exam, but then also coordinating that with an MRI. Sure. Or CAT scan. Yeah. That will that will give you more detailed information about the anatomy. You can start to see injuries to the tendons, the ligaments, the joint line itself. Mm -hmm. And then that has also led into a lot of the regenerative medicine world. You did a three-year residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at UCLA and the VA in West LA. How did that work? Correct. Uh, it was a combined program where we rotated uh, at UCLA the West LAVA, Cedar Sinai, and Rancho Los Amigos. Oh, that's much bigger than it sounded. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was a it was a multi campus type mm -hmm. of program. There were eight residents each year, and that was a three year residency. Mm -hmm. How long would you spend in each place? Since it's three years, you probably spend you a couple months in each place. Well, or? three months in each location, mm -hmm. and so you would bounce to four different locations each year. Ah. Sometimes you would end up going back to the the facilities that you had already been. Which was your favorite or which were your most favorite ones? Did you have a couple of them that you really enjoyed the most? 
My present one is the one I enjoy the most. <laughs> I'm sure it source, is. <laughs> source Healthcare is the one I enjoy the most. I don't know. You learn different things in each location. Yeah. You are a product of your environment and of your experiences. And every one of the locations that I trained at, I was able to garner some knowledge and some experience that helped to form the next chapter. Sure. One, one thing that's not even... On my resume, though, it, that probably had one of the biggest impacts on how I approach medicine today. Yeah, let's hear about it. Well, so in New Orleans, uh, I, was, I was licensed in New Orleans after my surgical internship year. And so for the three years that I was doing residency at UCLA and the VA, once a month, I would fly back down to New Orleans I kept a motorcycle there. and <laughs> Great I, city for a motorcycle. <laughs> right. And I would ride about 45 minutes outside of New Orleans into the bayou to a place called Homa, Louisiana. Homo? Homa. 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 H-O-U-M-A. Homa, Louisiana. And it's, it's pretty far out. Uh, but then I was, the, I was the attending physician in the ER at the county hospital, oh my. Chabert Medical Center, way, way down in the bayou. Yeah. And were you busy there? Were there enough people to keep you busy? Oh, yeah, plenty. <laughs> and, but that's what made it a great experience is, uh, I mean, as a, as a resident, you were struggling to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And so you would try to do moonlighting. That's what, they, what we refer to sure. that as. That's yeah. off hours work. Try to do moonlighting to help supplement your, your income. Would you go for a weekend or three-day weekend? Or? Usually I'd fly out on a Friday night uh-huh. and I'd get there late, ride the motorcycle down. I'd arrive to Homa by, I forget if it was maybe around 10 or 11 at night, in time to pick up a shift. Ooh. Then I'd work, <laughs> I'd work eight hours. I'd sleep there in the hospital. Yeah. I'd get up again and work another eight hours. Then I'd have about three or four hours that I'd just usually go up to the French Quarter, hang out on Bourbon Street for a little bit. Or, <laughs> Perfect or for down, a guy your age down, at that point, wasn't down, it? And then, you know, catch a cab, catch cab back over to the airport and fly back. Oh, you know, that's something that you don't even have on your resume, but it's a great part of your education. It made you who you were. Well, yeah, but the, the thing that really uh, helped was what I saw in the ER. I mean, when you... When you don't have an attending to fall back, you have nobody as fallback. You were the attending. I was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so you'd have something come in and you would you would tap into whatever resource you could find. And this was 98, 99, 2000. So the internet was not as ubiquitous mm-hmm. as it is now. Or as robust, uh, filled with everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Cell phones I was just then carrying a cell phone around. Were you calling people two hours earlier in California? I, I was calling people I knew from from internship, from yeah. usually, mainly from internship, because those were the people that were in the surgical subspecialties and the ones I had been most closely connected with the previous years. Sure. And and some of them had graduated and moved on, and so they were my they were my chief residents in general surgery at the time. And so I was tapping in mm-hmm. to their knowledge base, but then I was also, I would also call, sometimes call some of the attendings that I had uh, developed a relationship with. But then obviously there's textbooks. 
And that's that's right. So, yeah, so, we used to all go to textbooks. You know, when you when you have a guy that comes in with a full degloving injury from the mid calf down because of an. What does alleg- that mean, degloving? Degloving that means like well. The skin is the skin that imagine, glove? Imagine your skin is a sock. Okay. Right? You have a mid-calf sock, and you take that sock and you pull it down, but you leave, you leave it hanging from your toe. So everything is completely exposed all the way down to the toe, and the skin is hanging there like a sock dangling off the toes. So when you have someone like that and come in... this is from in, an alligator, you said? That's from an alligator, yeah. Whoa. And, and I've never... His, this guy's name was Zed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say any last <laughs> no, names no. for HIPAA compliance. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he came in and it was, it was comical the way he presented. Came in on a stretcher. He'd been brought in by the ambulance. And there was a blanket over his leg and it was wrapped up. And I just kind of asked him what, what had happened. And he said, oh... I had an ornery one that that uh, got a hold of my leg, so then I pulled everything back and I see this. It's like basically the full, fully exposed anatomy, mid calf down, musculature, vessels, nerves, and the crazy thing, everything was intact. Oh, that so, was a very skillful alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was amazing was it looked like it had just been surgically dissected off. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. And he was sitting there completely calm. Wide going, awake, hey, talking to you. Hey, thinking you can fix this? <laughs> yeah. And, and was um, was it bleeding? Probably not. It was just well, not it, too much. It was kind of oozy. Oozy, yeah. Yeah, it was oozy. But but that's what I'm saying is the, the arteries and veins were intact. Yeah. So he wasn't profusely bleeding. Uh, I mean, obviously, there was probably some small arteries that had already gone into spasm. Mm-hmm. So they, they weren't pumping. Yeah. Yeah. At that time. But when you get exposed to something like that and you're the one that has to figure out what to do, Mm -hmm. uh, you really start just trying to tap into anything and everything you have historically, anybody you can speak to. That wasn't really easy to find in a textbook. Did you and, find a plastic surgeon you could call or who, who what kind of well, doctor no, did you call? Well, no, I just basically, I, just, I called one of my, one of my former, um, chief residents uh-huh. that was then doing a cardiothoracic fellowship at the time. And I, you know, I had to restate what was happening about three times. He goes, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, I've seen that before. <laughs> oh, really? He had? Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. But he had trained down there. Yeah. So oh, okay. It, it may not have been from an alligator, but he uh-huh. had seen something like it yeah. before. So anyway, uh, the, the point of that little sidetrack was just, you, you are uh, a product of your yes. experiences. Yes. And that, that made me very resourceful. Stay tuned for more from Dr. Tim Davis after this. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. And we're back with this really amazing conversation with Dr. Tim Davis. 
you did your postgraduate training at the Spine Institute in Santa Monica. I think that's where I met you. Yeah, correct. That was, uh, started that in 2000. So I finished residency in 2000. Then my first year was at the Spine Institute. And that was a modified fellowship because the reason I say it was modified because it wasn't a traditional interventional pain fellowship. Um, That's why you call it postgraduate training. Yeah. You didn't really it, have a real name it, for it. Yeah, because uh-huh. it wasn't an official um, interventional pain fellowship. It was a spine specialty fellowship. Yes. Right. And so yes. uh, half the time I was working with the surgeons and half the time I was working with the interventional pain guys. And the reason that kind of came about was because I had done a surgical internship. Yes. So I had a certain amount of skill set in the OR. I could first assist. But then I was also working in the clinics with the surgeons. I got to see how they were thinking. And then I was also doing the interventional pain procedures with uh, about three anesthesiologists, interventional anesthesiologists uh, in the Beverly Hills area at the time. So once again, it was a very unique set of circumstances that allowed me to, to have exposure to a wide array of opinions and perspectives. And now you're here at Source Surgery Center on Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica. How did that develop? Uh, so I broke away from uh, a, the spine surgery practice a number of years back because it wasn't it wasn't really fitting the the direction that I thought I needed to go. I wanted to make sure that the 85% of the population was being addressed non-surgically. And then that, that 15 to 20% that does need to go surgically could go with confidence that that was the right move. Mm-hmm. Right. And I kind of didn't feel like that was happening when I was in a spine surgery practice. Some people would even hesitate. Some, some internal medicine doctors and physical therapists would even hesitate to refer stuff to me because they thought that I was just the fast track to a spine surgery. Ah. And I didn't know that until people got a little bit more comfortable with me and they actually started to come out and say it. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, okay, I got to change. I got to change the way I'm doing business. And so then once I did make that separation, uh, it was a little bumpy with myself and some of the spine surgeons in the community uh, because I think they saw me as trying to compete uh, for a period of time, I never saw it that way. Mm-hmm. I saw it as just serving that gap of an internal medicine needing to refer someone to figure out what's going on, right? And not have surgery be first thing on the table. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And and really just do the diligence to figure out where's the problem coming from, where's the pain coming from, where's the source of mm-hmm. the pain, mm-hmm. uh, which leads to the name. The name. Right? Oh yeah. And that's so. Good. The whole, the whole premise behind everything we're doing is to try to identify the source. And so people will come that have seen numerous other physicians before and maybe certain things have been tried and they said, oh, I've already uh, failed epidural injections. My question is where? Mm-hmm. What location? And did they look at the MRI? Really, oftentimes, and I, I don't... I don't mean to be critical of other people's methods, but but we try to make it very algorithmic. We try to make it very mathematical. Uh, when someone comes in with pain, 
the sum of the equation is their pain. Right. Right. That's the end product. That's the sum. And there are certain, depending on where the pain is coming from, let's just say low back, there's a finite number of variables that can be contributing. You have the muscles, you have the facet joints, you have the nerves, you have the discs, you have the vertebral body, mm -hmm. um, and you have the brain. Right. You can never neglect how much the brain is influencing mm -hmm. any of those factors. And so with an exam, with an MRI, and with a little bit of thought, you can start to drill down very quickly. Well, I know it's not that. I know it's not that. I know it's not that. And then you can start to put weight on one of those variables and say, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure 80, 90% certain that it's coming from here. Therefore, we're going to do a diagnostic type of procedure to eliminate that. Just sometimes you try even, to roll it out. Yeah. Putting mm -hmm. anesthetic on it, you mm -hmm. put anesthetic on a facet joint and you say, go do what normally hurts and see, and tell me if it hurts. And right there by process of elimination, you are able to definitively identify and diagnose where the source of the pain is coming from, then you can start on a treatment plan. Now, I want to look a little bit at some of the research that you've done, because I know you were a principal investigator for multiple FDA clinical trials, and you were involved in some of the original clinical work studying the effects of stem cells on the lumbar disc. Correct. So that's pretty impressive right there. What did you find? Uh, well, we failed a lot. <laughs> well, you have to. you got to fall down how many times before you stand? And, I'll start right. with that. Uh, yeah. there's, and there's a number of reasons that some of the early studies failed. Most of it was study design. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily that the, that the cell product or the growth factor, the, the bio, we'll, we'll call it biologic. When I use the term biologic, that's going to mean anything that is derived from uh, a living being, that has then been somehow modified or molded or transformed to then be used back in another living being. Uh, so those are various growth factors and proteins and blood products and cell-based cell technologies. Some of the early studies that, the early clinical studies that did fail dating back 14 years ago uh, or so, a lot of the failures were because of the study design. and. It's a much deeper discussion, but when you, when you do an intervention and you're looking for uh, a result, yes. right, an improvement, time window is everything. And so if you do a surgical procedure, mm -hmm. there's usually a certain time window that you're looking. Uh, if you do an anti-inflammatory steroid application, mm -hmm. there's a time window that you're looking at. Uh, when you do a biologic intervention, usually that time window may stretch out a bit further than those other two that I just mentioned. And so if you're modeling a study and you're looking at the wrong time window, uh, yeah. you're not going to see the results that you want to see. Now, the catch is that when you register for an FDA clinical trial, you have to identify that time window right out of the gates. Before you know anything. Before you know anything. So now you've learned. And if you don't hit that time window appropriately, and if your results don't don't become real within that time window, but they do become real after the time window, you start to see the improvements after the time window, guess what? It doesn't matter. I see. You don't get to go back. You don't get to change halfway through and mm -hmm. say, hey, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. We want to look at a 12-month time window rather than a six-month time window. And so your study has failed. It doesn't mean that the product didn't work. 
doesn't mean that the the cell uh, technology didn't have merit. Just means that you set up the study wrong. And so when I say we've had failures, the first couple of failures were because of that. Now we've learned. And now the studies that we've been involved in more recently, we've pushed that time window out because we understand that these biologic types of technologies and procedures don't work in the very short term. They may have some function mm -hmm. in the very short term, yeah. but when you're pushing it out over six, nine, and 12 months, we're still seeing improvement in that six to 12 month window. What's the best result you've had with stem cells on the lumbar discs? So when someone comes in asking about a stem cell procedure to us, number one, I'm assessing, do they qualify for a study, right? First of all, do they have any of the disease states like the disc degeneration mm -hmm. or knee arthritis that we're actually capable of even enrolling in a study? Are you enrolling people now? Yes, we have two, two actively enrolling studies. One's for lumbar disc degeneration with a company called Discgenics, mm -hmm. which uses a progenitor cell, which is just one step further differentiated than a stem cell, right? Stem cell is the cell that can become many things. A progenitor cell has already kind of picked its path. Yeah. It's not the end product cell, but it's picked its path. And the reason that we're kind of moving towards that technology is because once a cell has started to change and turn more into its end organ tissue, right? Like if it, if it's a cartilage cell that wants to be cartilage, but it's just in the early stages of becoming cartilage, mm -hmm. that cell actually becomes more resilient than the stem cell. So resilient against what? What's it fighting? A hostile environment. Yeah. A, a, a low, a low blood uh, and oxygen environment. So imagine this, uh, the, the joints and the discs, they don't have a lot of blood flow. That's right. Therefore, they don't heal that fast. Mm -hmm. So if you take a stem cell that lives in the bone marrow, which is very uh, good blood flow, highly oxygenated, and you take those cells and you pop them into a disc or into a, uh, an arthritic knee. Okay. That those are hostile environments. I'm not saying they're all going to die. They're still going to be able to do some good stuff, or we believe they are, but they're not going to be as resilient as the progenitor cell, right? That's already an that's adolescent. Our, it isn't a child exactly. anymore. That's, that's right. Yeah. And so kind of a good analogy is if you take a, a brown bear and you put that brown bear up in the Arctic, how long is that thing going to last? Not as long as the polar bears. <laughs> exactly. The polar bears are designed for yeah. that yeah. hostile environment. The brown bears are not. It'll survive for a bit, it'll, it'll be okay, but it won't like it. No. And yeah. then it'll yeah, eventually yeah. die. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we're seeing with cells what and cell technology. What a great picture that is, yeah. Well, but it puts it in perspective yeah. because if I start throwing out these big $10 medical terms, it becomes very confusing. Yeah. And it becomes very confusing even to other physicians sometimes. You've seen so much in your career. What do you foresee in the future in terms of new technology and techniques? Well, I think we're going to get some of these cellular products to market before too long. 
One of the problems will be is the insurance companies will not pay for it for at least the first five years, even after we have an FDA approval. Well, but right? five years isn't that long for people to wait. Well, that's, to that's, that's been waiting be, 20 years Yeah, already. but that's going to be on the low end. Okay. So, so let's just say, for argument's sake, let's say that we got an approval for a, a cellular product next year, right? Number one, it'll have one indication, mm-hmm. right? That one indication... Meaning one, one diagnosis you can use one, it for. One diagnosis mm-hmm. you can use it for. Mm-hmm. Even with an FDA approval on one diagnosis, insurance companies will not recognize that until there are about five more studies validating the efficacy of this post-market. Well, then everybody better be very thankful that you're a researcher doing all this work because you're the only one I know who is doing the research. The others are doing the injections, but you're yeah. doing the research. Yeah, well, look, I want things to work. Yeah. I don't, I don't like failures. I don't, I don't like having someone uh, pay their own dollars out of their pocket, which, I mean, that's a whole other discussion on what the healthcare industry is now and what insurance will pay for and won't pay for. Uh, but when someone has to start paying cash for procedures, and that's what's going to happen, mm-hmm. is that these cellular technologies, even after FDA approval, even after they get to market, it will be a cash procedure for yeah. an extended period of time. Five years at the minimum, maybe even seven years before insurance companies will start recognizing and reimbursing for them. So there's going to be this section of time where the consumer, the clients, are going to want this new technology and insurance companies are going to say, oh, too bad, that's on you. Yeah. So uh, th- that's where it's going to go. Uh, then another five or seven years down the road, then insurance companies will start at least uh, subsidizing it. Uh, and during that time, we will still be building better and better and better mousetraps. They'll basically. be subsidizing the research? No, they will be subsidizing the treatment. They'll never pay for 100% of anything. Mm -hmm. They will say, oh, well, that's a biologic. That's going to fall in this category. Therefore, we'll only pay 30% or we'll pay 70% or 50%. Whatever the percentage is, I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be based off their algorithms and models and projections. Uh, It's Their side of what they pay for and how they pay for it is very scientific. It's very... It's very numbers driven. So they will come up with a calculation with an equation where it will, it will be a certain percentage. That's, subsidized. that's why I said subsidize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's, that's where the future of kind of the orthopedic medicine is going. There's still going to be the need for surgery. This is not going to eliminate the need for surgical intervention. But what we're hoping is that if we can catch things earlier, right the disease process will not get so advanced to the point where you need surgery, maybe at all, or maybe not as soon. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. What a fascinating conversation. I thank you, Tim, for being part. I caught Dr. Tim Davis. <laughs> I know you, Tim, from hiking in the mountains, and yeah. I know you're a surfer. Anybody yeah. who surfs, I get to call by their first name. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I listen, I'm, it's uh, when we're talking, it's just us. Yeah. I don't, the, yeah. Some people get hung up on the titles, uh, uh, like I said, I value your time as much as mine as well. So I appreciate you coming down here and actually doing this. Well, thanks for being part of Meet the Doctors. Sure. You've been listening to pain management doctor and researcher, Dr. Tim Davis, here at Source Healthcare and Surgery Center in Santa Monica.
If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.